Amen. Thank you very much for praying, um, Connor. Well, do open your Bibles uh, back up if you've got one with you to Acts chapter 8. It'll be helpful to have, have that open as we uh, launch into this quite fascinating, really, little section um, from the book of Acts. So do, um, do have that open in front of you as we work through it. Um, but here's a, here's a question for you, though, as we start. What is your life all about? Or to ask a similar question, what is the most important thing in your life? Of course, it would then also be an interesting question, isn't it, to maybe turn to the person sat next to you or somebody else that you know and ask them the same questions about you. What would they say that your life is all about? What would they say the most important thing is in your life? Now, I begin by asking these questions this evening because I think the reality is that for many of us here, for most of us here, how we'd like to answer those questions isn't always how we would truthfully have to answer them. See, particularly if we are Christians here this this evening, we often speak, don't we, about putting Christ first in our lives, having him as first in our hearts. But we also are so aware of how quickly our hearts begin to wander, to wander away from Christ. In particular, wandering back simply to ourselves, to our own selfish ambitions, or to other fleeting pleasures that the world around holds out to us that we can enjoy. I think any of us who have been Christians for a while will feel something of that battle. Even this past week, many of us here will be aware of times in our lives and ways in our lives that we've ended up putting ourselves first instead of Christ. And I I think our passage for this evening, speaks both challenge and encouragement for us in light of that struggle that we have to live as Christians. A challenge, as we'll see, in the person of Simon, who despite an apparent profession of faith, never seems to fully move on and give his whole heart to the Lord. And an encouragement in seeing that the hope of the gospel of forgiveness, well, that, whole, that comes to all of us here this evening, no matter our background. And that hope of forgiveness even comes to us this evening when we know, well, that our outward profession of Christ is not always the reality in our hearts. There's forgiveness in the gospel. So, with those things in mind, let's look at the specifics here of this passage that we have before us. Remember, we've just seen in the previous verses of chapter 8 the good news being spread throughout Judea and Samaria by these believers who have been scattered by the persecution. And we've focused in on Philip, who has brought much joy there in verse 8 to a city in Samaria by his proclamation of Christ and by all of his miraculous signs. But then Luke introduces us in our passage for this evening in verse 9 to another person. Another person who had also, up to this point, enthralled this city in Samaria. And this person is Simon the Magician. 
Look with me at verses 9 to 11 again as I, as I read them. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Just as we saw Philip doing miraculous signs in verses 6 to 7 here, we're told Simon has been doing seemingly supernatural things as well. Now, we're not told exactly what this magic was that Simon uh, did. But I think it's fair just, just briefly to say that the Bible has a pretty clear view on practices like magic. It recognizes that there do seem to be people who practice things like divination, fortune-telling, sorcery. But it also gives a clear warning about them. Nowhere clearer than in Deuteronomy 18, where we read that whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. See, the Bible is clear. There are dark and powerful forces of evil out there. And magic often is where we see that at the fore. So, well, we're not going to spend long on this because I don't think this is the main point of this passage. Let me just encourage each of us this evening. Do not go there. Sure, maybe we're, we're not about to up and leave our jobs and pursue magic as our lives like maybe Simon here has here. And what I'm not talking about, of course, is a clever sleight of hand, or a card trick. But there is still real danger out there. Horoscopes. Games where people seemingly look into your future. Palm readers. There is all kind of a world of evil out there. That the devil would love you, love to show you something of his power through. But just remember, these practices don't and will never have God at the center. Because they push us beyond, don't they? They push us beyond the certain truth that God has revealed to us through his word. Some people in the world around us might call the practice of magic and things like that harmless fun. But as Christians, where there is a danger a danger of the devil getting a foothold in our lives. We need to steer clear. Right, so enough on that. As I say, that's not the main point here, but it's something I think we should take away. We don't know the specifics, uh, do we, of of what uh, magic Simon was practicing. Only, as we said, that it was amazing, the people. It was clearly powerful. But notice with me the most significant thing that I think we read from Simon in verses 9 to 11. As he does this magic, he then also uses the fame and approval that it offers him to speak. And notice with me whose name is on Simon's lips as he speaks. It's his own. Verse 9, he was saying that he himself was somebody great. 
And he's so convincing that do you see what everyone else then goes on and calls him in verse 10? The power of God that is called great. Great there with a capital G. As if Simon there is someone divine. This surely is the greatest sin of Simon, isn't it? First, he was, that he was doing this magic also that people would come and look at him. Look at his greatness. But then even more than that, that he would even dare to seemingly accept this kind of acclamation. That he could be the power of God. It seems Simon can pretty much say whatever he wants about himself, can't he? Because of the magic he's practicing. And his main aim is to make those around him think that he is great. For Simon, this is what life is all about. Simon. For Simon, it's all about Simon. It's all about him. Taking the acclaim of the crowd, he pretty much takes on the position of God for himself and over others. Now again, I don't imagine there are many of us here this evening who find ourselves in a similar position to Simon. Or maybe who feel we're at risk of falling into something like this. But I do think we have to see in what Simon is doing and wanting for himself a heart attitude that actually really isn't that far from our own. After all, wasn't the first sin of Adam and Eve, rooted in their desire to be like God. And here, Simon is continuing along that same vein. And when we look at our lives, I think we can sense something of that. That desire for a while to be all about me. For me to have complete control, not only over my life, but then also even over the lives of others, that they would do as I want them to. That would be real life, wouldn't it? Now, we'll come back to this as we pick back up about Simon a little bit later on. But for now, I just want us to see this and feel the challenge here. To beware of our natural and sinful drift. As Simon did, to start thinking of ourselves and speaking of ourselves as if we are somebody great. And perhaps even then, seeking after other people's acclamation of that. Whether that be at work, at home, on social media. What are we saying? What are we implying about ourselves? Whose name is on our lips? Is it our own? And why that's a big deal is that if we are Christians here this evening, our own name isn't the name that should be on our lips. Our lives have ceased to be all about me, me, me. And instead, our lives are lived for someone else. Let's see this as we look on then to the contrast made to Simon with Philip again. Philip in verse 12. All these people are amazed by Simon, but then we read in verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Just as Simon's acts of magic had made people listen to him, so Philip's miracles, done through the Spirit and in the power of Christ, well, they 
make people listen to him as well. But look at the difference between what Simon was saying about himself and what Philip was saying. Where Simon was saying he himself is somebody great, Philip was preaching good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Whose name was on Philip's lips? The name of Jesus. Now, in performing the signs we read that he did in verse 7, I guess there could have been a temptation, couldn't there, for Philip to begin to think a bit like Simon, to think, hey, you know what? I am pretty great. Look at all the things that I'm doing. But it doesn't seem that he entertains that thought, does he? Just as we read he was doing it in verse 5, proclaiming Christ, so he continues to do that. For Simon, it was all about Simon. But for Philip, well, for Philip, it's all about Jesus. And I hope that seeing this this evening can be an encouragement to us. While Simon's example serves as a warning to us about what our hearts are often like, Philip's, Philip's example serves to strengthen us and encourage us to see what he does and look to do the same ourselves. How can we, even in our day-to-day lives, look to have the name of Jesus on our lips? Maybe to encourage other Christians. That's what we're called to do, isn't it? As a body of believers together, to encourage other Christians around us in our workplaces, neighborhoods, our homes, as a church here. We encourage each other by speaking of Jesus, but then also we look to point others, others who haven't heard the good news of Jesus or haven't accepted it for themselves, point them to Jesus as well. And I think we should be encouraged to do this as well by the response that we see in verse 12 and also the response that we saw back in verse 8, if you were with us last week. Do you remember we saw in verse 8 that, that as Philip preached the gospel, performed these miracles, there was much joy in the city. Remember, that's why we say that we have the name of Jesus on our lips. That's why we proclaim him, because we believe that there is good news. There's joyful news in the Lord Jesus. Sure, some may not want to hear it, but that is the reality of what we're doing as Christians. We are holding out joy to people. And look then at verse 12. Look at the response to Philip's preaching. As he preached, the people believed, and they were baptized. As we have the name of Jesus on our lips, as we speak about him, we cannot expect a universally popular, positive response. We're not promised that in the Bible. But I think as Christians, we can begin to underplay the probability of people responding positively to us if we do speak about Jesus. Assuming, almost, off the beat from the start that, that, well, people won't want to hear. People won't respond. And from a human perspective, I guess that might be fair enough. But just remember, as we speak about Jesus, it isn't the power of our own words, our own arguments. It's about the power of God who, as we said this morning, through his spirit can move in anyone's heart in just an instant to call them to himself. 
If we do truly believe that Jesus is good news, is joyful news, we should, I think, be expecting other people, even in an increasingly secular Northern Ireland today, to see that for themselves as well. Picking up on this, the American pastor, um, Kevin DeYoung, he asks this question, and I think it's a good one. Just as God, here we see in this passage, provided people to hear Philip, do we believe that God still has people who will listen today? Do we believe God still has people who will listen today? And I think if we're going to take Jesus' words seriously that he spoke in the New Testament, we're going to have to answer yes to that. As we hear of God's word, don't we? Jesus talks of God's word landing on good soil and producing a crop 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. And as we hear Jesus' promise to Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The magic of Simon had amazed the people. But when they saw what Philip was now doing and heard from him, not self-centered proclamations, but good news of great joy in the Lord Jesus, the Spirit opens their eyes, opens their hearts, and they respond From what we read in verse 12, it seems the seed of the word here falls on good soil amongst the Samaritans. Christ is building his church. And I think that we should be encouraged and take heart and confidence that God will continue to do that today. As we hold out that same good news of great joy to our city, to those around us, and as God continues to do that work right across the world. And then in verse 13, we see something else, don't we? If you look there with me, it seems even Simon now believes Philip. We read that he's baptized and sticks close by Philip from then on. And the end of verse 13 has a kind of irony hanging over it, doesn't it? This seemingly powerful magician who has amazed so many people himself, well, he sees true signs and genuinely great miracles, and he recognizes that these are so much greater than, he, than the miracles he could perform. And do you see there? The tables have turned. He is now amazed. The power of Christ will always be greater than any other power in the world around us. And I think this verse should encourage us in that. Simon, well, he seemed to have power, didn't he? But here he recognized it is nothing compared to the power of Christ at work in these Samaritans' lives as he transforms them, transforms them spiritually and transforms them physically. So at first glance, in verse 13, it seems that Simon himself becomes a believer Of course, we read beyond this earlier. We know that there's a bit more to come. But for now, here's where Luke leaves us in verse 13. Simon believing and being amazed. But has Simon really changed? Well, Luke leaves us with a bit of a cliffhanger here. We'll come back to Simon. But but for now, a bit like in those TV shows that cut here, there, and everywhere, Luke now seems to cut away from this 
to another seat. In verse 14, if you look with me, we now cut back to Jerusalem, where we hear that word has reached the apostles of these people in Samaria receiving the word of God, coming to Christ for themselves. And so they respond by sending Peter and John to this city, to this area. And when, when they come, we then read in verse 15 that they pray for these new Samaritans, these new Samaritan believers, that they will receive the Holy Spirit, for he hadn't fallen on them yet, even though they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, we read that they then lay their hands on them, and the people then do receive the Spirit. And I think we have to ask, what is going on here? What is going on here in this strange case, as it were, of the Holy Spirit coming on these Samaritan believers later on? After all, we read back in Acts, we read back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the normal pattern for people who come to Christ. We read there Peter calling the people to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no discussion there of later receiving the Holy Spirit, of him only coming after certain special prayers are prayed or or laying on of hands from some certain people. So what is happening here? Well, first off, from what we just read in Acts chapter 2 and from what we see of the normal pattern seen elsewhere right throughout the New Testament and throughout the book of Acts, we have to see that this event in Acts chapter 8 is an exception rather than the norm. The norm being there, do you remember there, that the forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit, well, they are both immediate blessings that we receive when we come to Christ. As one commentator points out, what we don't now read, if you've read on in the book of Acts, is of the apostles scurrying up and down the eastern end of the Mediterranean in an attempt to keep up as the gospel goes out further and further with the apostles' little time to do anything other than carry out confirmation services. That that picture is amusing, isn't it? And incredible, but it's not at all what we see. This is an exception. What happens here is clearly a one-off. And as a result, I, I don't think there's any reason for us as Christians to speak of some kind of second blessing, as some Christians do, when the Spirit is given later in a special way to believers. Sure, I have no doubt, and I think many of us in, our, in, in here can testify, there are times when the Spirit does, later on, work powerfully in our lives, revealing more of God, more of his holiness. But that isn't to say that we haven't all been given the Spirit in the first place. So if this isn't the norm, if we are to expect the Spirit to be given to believers at the point of them putting their faith in Jesus, why is it that the Samaritans here are only given the Spirit after Peter and John come and pray for them? And without going into too much detail, I think it's for this simple reason. As we said last time, this is a big moment in the book of Acts and in the going out of the gospel. For the first time here in this book, we see that the gospel has gone out beyond the Jews. And it's coming to to Samaritans. Samaritans who are putting their faith in Jesus. 
So in this instance, it seems that God is choosing to powerfully demonstrate to Peter, John, and all the other apostles, along with all believers everywhere, that these Samaritans, well, they are genuine believers, just as you are. There's no separation here. Just think about it. As the Samaritans received the Spirit in this way, it must have become crystal clear to Peter and John, well, this is God at work. We can't doubt that. The Spirit has come. And these Samaritans, well, they have received all of the same blessings that we have. And they would have then passed that message on, wouldn't they, to others, so that the whole church would hear this. The whole church would hear this, this message, the gospel. Well, it really is for all, for all, without distinction. It's even for those who the Jews, well, before they would have cast off as outsiders like these Samaritans. And as we see this, as we said last week, I think this should be an encouragement to us, an encouragement to us, because that means it's for you and it's for me this evening, this gospel. This clear demonstration of the far-reaching acceptance of God to Samaritan believers and then eventually to Gentile believers later as in chapter 10 means that we sit or stand here this evening just as much true Christians as anyone else if we are trusting in Jesus. There is no second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. The Jews, well, they would have viewed the Samaritans a bit like that in the past, second-class citizens, but not now, not in Christ. In Christ, all are fully accepted. All are united to him. All have received the Spirit, and all are welcomed into God's family, no matter your background, no matter where you come from, no matter your culture. There's beauty and encouragement here, isn't there? But there's also challenge. There's challenge. Is that how we also today view the kingdom of God? That any and all who belong to Christ, well, they are all of equal value, no matter their background. Are we really ready to not only accept, but then go out of our way to identify with identify with believers of other backgrounds. That is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? We sit here this evening, it breaks down all other boundaries. Let's go out of our way here at Great Vic to reflect that, to reflect the beauty of the gospel that says all are welcome. All can come freely and receive forgiveness and the Spirit because of the work of Christ. Let's throw open our doors here and say, whoever will come in the name of Christ, well, they are welcome. The gospel is for all. Jesus is for all. And all of this means that the gospel is even for people like Simon, who we see pop up again now in verse 18. Simon, back in verse 13, we read, didn't we, that he, he seems to have believed, and he's been baptized. But things take this surprising turn from verse 18 onwards. As we see now the sobering case of Simon that Luke 
presents to us. And I think the question that comes right out of what we see here in this section is the one that's up there. Whose name is in your heart? Because it seems to have, because it seems Simon, well, he has professed the name of Christ. He's been baptized. But here we get a look, don't we, at what is really going on inside in his heart. Let's see this as we look at what happens from verse 18 through to the end. Seeing that the apostles uh, seemed to have the power to give the Spirit to those who they laid their hands on Simon, who, remember, has been sticking close by, hasn't he, to Philip, watching everything that's going on. Well, he, he comes, doesn't he? And he decides, well, I would like in on this. End of verse 18, he offers the apostles money so that, verse 19, he can have this kind of power too. And Peter isn't best impressed, is he? with Simon's attempt to buy this power of God, is he? Look, look at uh, what he says, verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now what are we to make of this next section then here about Simon and Peter's response? Well, first off, I think we're meant to see that despite a seeming profession of faith that we read about back in in verse 13, Simon's heart, well, that doesn't seem to have been changed at all, does it? Do you remember what was his life all about before believing and being baptized? It was about himself. Simon was all about Simon. And what about now? Verse 19 He's all about himself again. Give me this power so that anyone I lay hands on. For Simon, it's still all about Simon. He recognizes, doesn't he? There is a greater power than his magic going on here. And rather than bowing to it, he wants to have that power for himself, to have control over it. And for what reason? Well, almost certainly so that the people, well, they would think greatly of him again. Remember, they've now turned and repented and come to Christ. True faith in Christ, as Christ himself said, involves denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Faith in Christ is not a simple profession of Christ with our lips, only to then get on with doing life as we were before, with it all being about me, me, me. For Simon, it's always seemingly been about Simon, and it still seems to be, doesn't it? So what about his supposed faith there? What are we to do with that, that belief that was mentioned in verse 13? Well, without going into too much speculation beyond what's here, I think it's fair to assume that given all that he saw, Simon had genuinely recognized the true power lying behind Philip's signs and had even recognized probably the truth of the gospel. 
the gospel that Philip was preaching. But seeing that the gospel is true is not enough. As we read about in James, even the demons, they know truth about God like that. The demons are always calling out about the true identity of Christ in the Gospels. See, faith is more than seeing the Gospel as true. It's about making the Gospel, making Jesus the truth in your life. Making the Gospel, making Jesus what your life is all about. Making Jesus the one who we now submit to in everything the Lord over all of our lives, as we were thinking about this morning, the one who we will even give all of our life up for. There's no doubt that this is a challenge for us, isn't it? As we said at the start. And Peter's stark words add to that, don't they? As they clearly show the serious consequences of having only this kind of faith that Simon demonstrates, lips professing Christ without the name of Jesus also in the heart. As we were kind of thinking about this morning, this kind of living, while perhaps not often seen as dramatically as it's seen in the, the case of Simon, is something that I think all of us are tempted towards. A life maybe professing Christ with our lips, but rarely even letting him rule in our hearts, rarely thinking about him, rarely letting him be the one who really our lives are all about. Here in Northern Ireland in particular, particularly compared to the rest of uh, the UK, I guess there's still the temptation of being a cultural Christian. Being a cultural Christian who, who turns up on a Sunday to church. Call yourself a Christian, particularly when you're around other Christians. But really, in reality, Jesus makes no difference to your life. Except maybe meaning that you can occasionally look down on others who perhaps never talk about Jesus. If that's you, and only you can truly know your heart this evening, be warned by Peter's words there in verse 21. They're stark but important to hear. He said, didn't he, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. That is the gift of God, the Spirit, forgiveness, for your heart is not right before God. And then, of course, there's the person who professes Christ and who gives some of their lives, some of their life over to him, but maybe just not all of it. But we'll just keep that little bit back for ourselves. What could that be? That could be, say, a relationship or a pursuit of a relationship. Surely if I've given, well, I've given so much else to Jesus, well, surely I can... Just look out for myself in that area of my life, can't I? Or maybe it's money. After all, money here reveals Simon's heart, doesn't it? What are you using your money for? If someone looked at your bank account, would someone looking at it know that your life is all about Jesus? Or maybe it's work your career advancement, or maybe your reputation. Well, that trumps it all, if you're really being honest. That's what life's about. 
I'm going to pursue that even if, well, maybe that means I don't always do things with Jesus at the center. Or even think about what you watch or what you listen to or what you spend your time flicking through your phone, looking at or doing. We can say to ourselves almost, can't we? Well, I've given so many of different parts of my life to Jesus. Surely I can keep well, this little bit to me. I can indulge myself here. Put myself first and just enjoying whatever it is that I enjoy. Even if, well, it doesn't always honor Jesus. Surely that's okay. As we said at the start, I think this is a, a battle, an ongoing struggle that we all have as Christians. The call of Christ to deny ourselves is a steep one, and it's too steep, isn't it, here for Simon? And the call to deny ourselves and follow Christ, well, it's so different to what the world around us bombards us with as well, the messages. Just do whatever you want. None of it really matters. I wonder as we reflect on this, as you hear those words from the world, as you think about some of these things, where is it that you find that pull, that pull away from Christ and towards yourself the most in your life? Where does this take root in your heart? I'd encourage you to keep reflecting on that. We need to heed the warning here. The warning that comes with Peter's words, a life only lived professing Christ without actually having his name and the all-out pursuit of his glory in our hearts is one that brings with it the threat of judgment. Remember what Jesus himself said too. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. As we've been thinking about in Galatians in the mornings, we are not saved by our works, by what we do. There is nothing that we can add to the work of Christ. But true faith in Christ will also be shown in a life that is then lived with him at the center of it all. That's the outworking of the gospel. And while we feel the way to those words and we need to take them seriously, let me also then speak the hope of the gospel into them too because that's what we see here in verse 22. Did you notice that even after Peter's had these judgmental words, his judgment, he declares, doesn't he, judgment on Simon. In verse 22, he still holds out hope. He holds out hope to him. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This is the hope of the gospel spoken to Simon and spoken to every single one of us here this evening. If you're sitting there like me and you're feeling convicted of ways that you, well, you are really living for yourself, you aren't living with Jesus at the center, we can once again bring all of that to the Lord and seek his forgiveness. Knowing that with absolute certainty, if we truly are sorry for our sin, for the sin of our hearts, for our selfishness, we can find and we will find full and final forgiveness at the cross of Christ. No life, even lives like Simon or, or like Saul, who we were thinking about this morning. No life is too far gone 
for the grace of God to reach out and transform it, to offer forgiveness, to offer hope. And that's the key, I think, here as we close. Notice how Simon responds to Peter. Because rather than praying to the Lord, as Peter told him to, he doesn't do that, does he? He, Instead, he comes to Peter and he asks him to pray for him. And in what he says there, if you look at it, there isn't even a sense of his own remorse or repentance, is there? For what he's done, for his attitude of his heart. No, his words only reflect, well, it's a fear about what could happen to himself. It's still about himself. And of course, coming to Peter, well, that's no good to Simon, is it? Coming to Peter and asking him to pray. No, it's only by coming to Jesus that there's hope for Simon. Only by coming to Jesus, who is the one mediator between God and man, that Simon can find forgiveness. But sadly, his heart seems too proud, too self-obsessed for that. He simply cannot bring himself to give it all to Christ. As we see this sobering case of Simon and reflect on it, even as we go on into this week, let's let it move us. And remind us of that call to make the Lord Jesus Lord over all things in our lives. That's the call of Christ to anyone who will come after him. To take up our cross and to to deny ourselves and to follow him. So let's look to do that this week. And of course we can only do that by the gift and the help of the Spirit. So let's pray for him to help us. But let's also see here and go into this week with the hope of forgiveness ringing in our hearts too. Knowing that when we do fail, the hope of forgiveness is there. And and I can only imagine in verse 25, that is the hope that Peter and John are, are taking out with them as they see these Samaritans who've been welcomed into the people of God. And they go out now. And that's what they're speaking, isn't it? the hope of Christ, of forgiveness, of the Spirit's refreshing and changing of their hearts. They go through these villages proclaiming that as they go back to Jerusalem. And that is the best news that any of us could hear. If we will repent of our sin and turn to Christ, give our lives to him, there is full forgiveness and there is new life for us to enjoy as we then go on and seek to serve the Lord with all of our lives. Let's pray and give thanks to God for that and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the work of Christ. We thank you so much for the forgiveness and the hope that we find in him. Lord, we thank you for this Reminder here in this passage that the gospel is for all. And that means it is for all of us here this evening. Help us to rejoice in that. To take courage and confidence in that this evening. Know that if we, no matter where we're from, no matter our background, if we are trusting in Christ, we have been made right with you. But yet, Lord, we've also felt the weight, the pinch of this passage as well, as we've seen the, the example of Simon here. 
seemingly professing the name of Christ, but his heart not changed. Lord, please would you work in our hearts. Please would you change us. Please would you, by the work of your spirit, be making us those whose lives really are all about Jesus and help his name to be on our lips as we go on into this week, not our own. Lord, we don't seek our own glory, but we seek the glory of Christ. And Lord, we long for more and more people to see that glory and to come to him to find hope and forgiveness. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to um, close our time together by singing this song, There Is No Other Name. This is the name of Christ on our lips as we profess the hope that we have because of him. And then we go on into this week speaking that name as well. Let's stand and sing as the musicians begin to play.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.